The D.C. area treats COVID-19 differently now. Mask and vaccine mandates are gone, and crowds are back to packing into the metro to see the cherry blossoms. But in a familiar turn of events, a new type of COVID-19 is emerging across the world. And the nation's top infectious disease expert says cases will likely go up in the near future. So does this variant of Omicron, BA2, threaten our newfound sense of normalcy? Cases are rising in parts of Europe, and in particular, the United Kingdom, a country U.S. scientists have considered a reliable example for what's to come here. President Joe Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says we can expect a similar uptick in COVID cases. My good friend and colleague Scott Gelman spoke with Dr. Fauci about this rise in COVID cases, why it's happening, and what we can do about it. Just to start here, wanted to talk to you a little bit about BA2, uh, what you think it's important for people to know about BA2, and also uh, looking to Europe and how uh, what we might learn from what's going on over there and in terms of what may be happening here eventually. Well, BA2 is a, a sub-lineage of the variants which we call Omicron, and the original Omicron is BA1. BA2 has a transmission advantage over BA1. So if they go head-to-head in the community, sooner or later, BA2 will overtake BA1. It isn't uh, dramatically more transmissible, but transmissible enough that would give it an advantage. About 85% of the isolates worldwide, particularly in Europe and the UK, are BA2. In the United States, it's crept up from a few percent to where somewhere between 30 and 45%. Now, some cities have up to 50% BA2. Although it's more transmissible, when you look at the result of infection, it does not appear to be more severe at all. So it doesn't result in any more risk of hospitalization for a person to get infected. And it doesn't elude or escape the protection of vaccines any more than BA1 does. So similar, a bit more transmissible, not much more different. We're seeing an uptick in cases in the UK and Europe, and that has been due to three factors. One, as I mentioned, the increased transmissibility capability of BA2. Number two, the relaxation of restrictions such as masking for indoor congregate settings. Many European countries, the UK and others have pulled back on that, which naturally would lead to an increase in infections. And third would be waning immunity from vaccines as well as prior infections. So it is not surprising that we're seeing an uptick in cases in those countries. Speaking to our European and UK colleagues, they have not seen a proportionate increase in hospitalizations or the utilization of intensive care unit beds or an increase in all-cause mortality. So although the infections are going up, it does not appear, at least up to this point, that it's causing more severe disease. So we can probably expect in this country that given that we have those three conditions here, BA2, we have relaxation of restrictions like indoor masking mandates, and there is waning immunity that we can expect to start to see, I would imagine in the next week or so, an increase in cases in some regions of the country, particularly those areas 
that are under-vaccinated. And in terms of some of that immunity coming from vaccines and also prior infection, uh, what have we learned about the role that prior infection has played in both uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated people here? Well, there are a couple of comments that one can make about uh, prior infection. One, when you are infected and recover from an infection, you do have a degree of immunity that wanes the same way as the immunity that's induced by vaccines. We do know that if you get infected and then subsequently get vaccinated, the level of your immune protection is extremely high, which is one of the reasons why the CDC still recommends that even though you have been infected and recovered, that you actually get vaccinated because that would really bring your degree of protection very high. And in terms of moving forward, there, there's some conversation now about a potential fourth shot, whether it be sooner or in the fall. Uh, what do you make of the potential need for that? And will it will we get to a point where it stops being called a booster and more so just becomes a, a COVID annual shot like with the flu vaccine? Well, here's what we know now is that in the United States uh, and data we're getting from Israel as well as in the United States, that when you get a third shot about four to five months later, the protection against hospitalization drops from around 91% to around 78%. The FDA is now collecting data on what happens at month six, seven, and eight. Does it go down far enough so that you would want to give a fourth boost to some subset of the population, particularly the elderly, which we know traditionally do not have as robust an immune response to vaccines as does an otherwise healthy young person. So right now the FDA, and then they will work closely with the CDC, while looking at data for an immediate decision of what to do in the next month or two regarding a fourth dose of an mRNA. In addition, they will be meeting with their advisory committee on April 6th to look at the long range projection and answer to your question, what is it gonna look like as we get into the fall and the early winter? Will, be, will we, and we don't know yet at this point, will we be asking and recommending vaccinations for everybody? And then that leads to the next question, is this gonna turn into a yearly type of thing like we have with flu. The honest answer to that, Scott, is that we do not know. We do not know how long the durability of the protection is gonna be. There's always the issue, are we gonna get another variant that not only eludes durability of protection, but doesn't have any real protection to begin with. All of those factors are in play right now, and we're just gonna to have to take them as they come. And when you're describing the, the waning protection that some folks have from the third booster shot is there. And, and I know that this is probably going to be in those conversations that are going to be had. Uh, but for you, what does that metric look like or a range of numbers look like to get to a point where uh, the level against severe hospitalization and death is so insufficient that uh, you may feel that it would be time for an additional shot? Scott, there's no magic number there. It really is going to depend on the seriousness of the disease that leads to hospitalization, the hospital capacity, and things like that. But you know, everything is relative. If you're an 80-year-old person and you're out there and the level of protection is 60% against hospitalization, you may want to get 
those extra points and go up to 85, 90, 90%. So again, no magic number there. We'll just have to look at it and examine it as we see what evolves over the next few months. And in that same realm, I wanted to ask you about risk and how folks at this point in the pandemic should individually and collectively as, as a family go about uh, determining the, the level of risk that they might be comfortable with, given all of the uh, therapeutics and vaccines that are currently available. Well, I think you said it. There's going to be a great range of risk taking and risk aversion. There are some people that are very risk averse. They don't want any risk. So they're going to be really, really careful and you have to balance how you want to live your life, what you want to do in society versus your willingness to accept the risk of an infection. And particularly if you're in a category at a high risk for severity of disease, your risk taking may be much, much less and a much, much higher bar than the risk of an otherwise healthy person who's been vaccinated and boosted and says, you know, I'm going to go about my business and not restrict myself in any way. That's, that's a very good question, but there's a tremendous range of variability of people in the risk they're willing to take. Right now, fortunately, the infections, the hospitalizations, and the deaths are going down. And we are hoping that we will now gradually get to the point of approaching a degree of normality, and that even though we're not going to completely get rid of these infections, there's not a chance that we're going to eradicate this. And we almost certainly are not going to eliminate it, but it will be around and we'll have to make a decision at what level of infection in the community are we willing to reassume a normal way of living, which we have not been doing for the last two years. And the word endemic has been thrown around a lot. What does that look like? And are we there yet, according to the way that you're looking at numbers across the country at the moment? Well, again, Scott, endemic has a wide range. I mean, you can have an endemic disease that's devastating. Endemic means it's there at a certain level. It's not up, it's not down, it's sort of at a certain level. When you say endemic, we would accept a level of endemicity that does not disrupt our lives, our society, our economy. That is a level that's very low. I mean, a few months ago, when we were having hundreds of thousands of new infections per day and hospital overflow and 1,500, 2,000 deaths per day. That's a level of endemicity that's not acceptable at all. We seem to be heading towards that now. We're getting to a low level, 27,000 new infections. We now are less than 1,000 deaths per day. We're not there yet, but we're getting there, and hopefully we'll continue to go in that positive direction. And I want to ask you about masking on transportation for a second. The Biden administration recently extended the mass transit mask mandate until mid-April. Uh, at what point do you anticipate that that there may be a decision to uh, either continue to extend that or eliminate it? Or uh, what factors or metrics do you anticipate the administration is using there? Well, that's a very good question. And it really is in real time following the situation on the ground. And that has to do with the national level of infection, the community level, and whether or not there are regional differences, like from one part of the country to another. So the, first of all, when you're talking about um, masking on planes for domestic flight, that's a TSA decision. They'll work very closely with the CDC. When you're talking about busing and trains and things, it's the same fundamental principle. You evaluate what the level of viral activity is 
and it's 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 continually being evaluated. So at any time now, depending upon the level of infection, there may be a change in the guidelines of the requirements. And uh, this week, Moderna submitted some uh, data for uh, its vaccine for very young children. I know Pfizer did the same. Uh, what is your message to parents who are so anxiously awaiting the time when their children may be able to get vaccinated? Well, the message is that the FDA and then ultimately the CDC with their recommendations will examine the data and do what they do best is to make sure that when a vaccine is approved for children within a certain age category, it will be safe and it will be effective. And I know we'd like to have the vaccines available for all age groups right now, but things are being done correctly. The data are being carefully analyzed to make sure that when a determination is made, it's based on solid scientific data. So I would ask parents of children in that age group to please be patient. It's moving along, the data are coming in, and hopefully within a reasonable period of time, we'll have a determination. I'm just curious, what, if anything, at this point in the pandemic keeps you up at night here? What, what are you thinking about? What's on your mind? What are you really tangling with? Well, there are a couple of things. One is there's always the possibility that we'll get another variant that would surprise us, similar to what we had with Delta and then even more so with Omicron. One of the ways to prevent that from happening is to try and get the rest of the world, as well as ourselves, vaccinated to the highest extent possible, because the more you interfere with the dynamics of the virus transmission in society, the less of a chance that you're gonna have a new variant. And that's the thing that I get concerned about. And I also related to that, am concerned that we still only have about 65% of the total population fully vaccinated. And only about 50% of the people who are vaccinated have gotten their boosters, even though they're eligible for boosters. So those two things are related and one can help the other. Dr. Fauci, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Uh, good to be with you, Scott. Take care. On Friday, multiple news outlets reported that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is set to authorize a fourth dose of Pfizer and Moderna for adults over the age of 50 this week. Also on Friday, Patrick Ashley with DC Health said BA2 makes up 29% of new cases in DC. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Luke Garrett. The show featured WTOP digital editor Scott Gelman and his conversation with Dr. Fauci. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett, and our music is courtesy of Locksbeat. Join me next Monday as the world recovers. Hey, it's Luke here again. If you've liked this show, is it normally a podcast? I've got some exciting news for you. I'll be starting a new daily podcast with WTOP's investigative reporter, Megan Cloherty. It's called the DMV Download. We'll be launching it this spring, and we'll be doing what we've done in this show. But instead of just focusing on the pandemic, we'll zoom out on all the stories that WTOP covers. So every afternoon, we'll drop an episode where we dive deep into the top story of the day. Be sure to check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. That's at DMV Download.